Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today on Around the Coin, I interviewed Steve Berneman. He's the co-founder and CEO of Blueprint. He was a practicing attorney and serial entrepreneur prior to starting Blueprint. Uh, Blueprint is focused on creating a much better, much improved way for people and agents to access title insurance. So buying and selling homes, you need title insurance. We dove into the details of what title insurance is, the history of it, why people need it, why it's so overblown, so bloated, and what they're doing to improve it. We touched a lot on the regulation, the impact of crypto and blockchain NFTs potentially on the prop tech space and what Blueprint is doing in that area. And I learned a lot from Steve. He's a super intelligent, motivated uh, knowledgeable guy. So I hope you very much enjoy that conversation. Today's show is sponsored by Otter Labs at HireOtter.com. You can check out a community of over 1,200 developers down in Latin America, Argentina in particular. So if you're hiring engineers for your existing software startup or you have a project that you're trying to get off the ground and you want to bring people on, augment the team, check out HireOtter.com. It's a great option being that they're all English fluent. They are on the same time zone as the East Coast and they're very smart people. So check out Otter Labs. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Steve Berneman. All right, Steve. So we are officially on air. I'm excited to dive in with you today. Um, do you want to kick us off and give us, uh, give me a update on what you're working on and what you, what the company is trying to achieve in the world? Yeah. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Um, so Blueprint Title. Uh, Blueprint is a title and closing company designed for sophisticated buyers, sellers, and lenders. What that means is we exist to make buying real estate easier, less expensive, and far more confident. Um, so title and closing for anyone who's bought a house. And Mike, you just told me you just bought a new house. Congratulations. Um, title and closing is just such an antiquated world, right? Like you, when you bought your house, and, and we haven't talked about this, but I can kind of make some guesses. Uh, you found a new house. It was great. You did all a bunch of things by the computer, by your phone. Uh, and then when closing came, you... Uh, you either went to an office or someone came to you and they brought 150 pages of paper that you had never seen before. And they handed you a blue pen and they said, start signing. Um, is that yeah, roughly yeah. right? It's, it's, it's funny you say this because I was literally just on the, on the phone with uh, a representative from KeyBank. We're using KeyBank and yep. they are, they're good. There's, there, we were using this company better and they were, they were slick, but kind of expensive. And the key bank experience is like, this is a company they're they're pretty big. You know, they've had like a ton of locations, a multi-billion dollar bank. And, uh, like you say, it's not in person. So I'm not signing anything there, but they send me a 55 page PDF and tell me to print it mm -hmm. off and sign it 33 times. And yeah. that's a pretty frustrating experience for sure. Cause there's like 13 other things on my to-do list that I've got to knock out this evening. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, look, and, and you're doing that as a, as a home buyer, right? I mean, like you have an emotional connection to the property. That's not even closing. That's just the loan. Like wait till you get to closing. Um, think about whether, you know, if you want to buy real estate as an asset class, if you're trying to say, well, I'm going to diversify my portfolio, diversify my portfolio. I'm going to buy a little bit of crypto. Uh, I think single family residential real estate is, is a good and growing asset class, which by the way, one of the best asset classes in the last five years, um, 
I want to, you know, look at NFTs. I want to look at whatever I want. Um, there's a really streamlined and great way to purchase all of those assets except real estate. When we buy real estate, we still do it with pen and paper. Uh, transaction costs are really high and transaction costs include time and money. Uh, and we leave people in the dark. We say to people, look, uh, don't worry. You know, like you've gone under contract. Now you've got to hand it over to an escrow company. And the escrow company is going to do whatever they do. And it's going to take them however long it takes them. And they'll let you know when you can actually buy this asset. Um, and, and to us, that's just a crazy antiquated process. So go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you to extrapolate on that a little bit. So the escrow comes into play. So you have just the basic chess pieces here are you have somebody owning the property. You have somebody selling the property. You have a lender that's giving money to the buyer, a buyer. Uh, because sure. it's you know it's a big purchase and so they want to they want to spread it out over time. Then there's the escrow company which facilitates the transaction itself. How, wh- what is the escrow? If you describe what an escrow company does, say in the case of a, a single family home, wh- what value sure. are they actually providing? Yeah, so um, in a lot of ways they're the neutral referee. So you as the buyer and there's a seller and there's a lender and there's all these contracts around, right? We've all agreed we're all going to do some things. The escrow company serves as a neutral referee that's whose job is to effectuate all the elements of the contract. So here's the really short version. There's 30 things that you and the seller have agreed are going to happen before purchase. One of them is you might go get a loan, right? But there's 30 things you guys agreed on. There's two really big ones. You, the buyer are going to send the purchase price to the seller. The seller is going to transfer a deed of ownership from seller to you, the buyer. Everything else is important. Those are the two that are actually happening. That are the big ones, right? Our job as the escrow company is to take all the money and prepare and collect all the documents and then make the proper transfer. One of the things that's often involved in escrow is also the purchase of a title policy. So most, it it differs in a lot of states, but title and escrow often go together. Um, And that's the selling of an insurance policy that's a guarantee to the rights and encumbrances on the land. And I'm happy to sort of dive into that further. But in short, what we're doing is we're making sure that the purchase and that the title insurance go off as expected. What what is title insurance? What sure. is it? Yeah, can you tell me title insurance and a title? Some of this stuff I know a little bit more than others because it's so fresh. But I'm also, you know, picking this up uh, for the first time on myself my, for myself as well. Yeah, happy to. And and look, uh, to Blueprint started January first, twenty seventeen. In twenty sixteen, I had bought title insurance three or four times. I had no idea what it was. And I would say that most people are in that boat that I was in. It's like a thing you buy, but you're not really sure what it is, right? So um, let me give you a little bit of the legal and then I'll explain what it is. Title insurance is a guarantee against unknown encumbrances on your land. Here's what that means. When you buy land in the United States, what you're buying is the property and a set of rights to that property, right? Like you think about it like this is old school America like, I, I own this land. I can do what I want on this land, right? And I'm allowed to use that accent because I live in Tennessee. So, <laughs> like, in particular, I can keep people off my land, right? Like trespassing. I can keep people off. Except when you buy land, usually there's some kind of a history of, like, little enco- encroachments or encumbrances on that set of rights, right? And some of them are totally normal. So, one of the really normal ones is... uh you can keep everyone off your land, except the water company has an easement. The water company is allowed to come on your land because it's for the good of the public. Same with the power company, right? You might live in an HOA, and no matter how much you want to paint your, your roof pink, you're not allowed to paint your roof pink because the HOA says you can't. Another one is that mortgage you take. When you get that, that loan from the bank, they, they put a deed of trust or security deed on your property. There's a lien on your property. Totally normal, not a scary lien. Um, but it stops you from doing certain things. Well, when you buy a piece of property, the title company delivers to you this list of exceptions to your ownership. There's a water easement, there's power easement, there's an HOA, right? And what we guarantee you with the title insurance policy is there's nothing we haven't told you. And if there is something we haven't told you, 
we'll take care of it and we'll pay for it. Mm. Okay. And so uh, that might be the last owner didn't pay the water bill. It might be there was uh, they paid off the mortgage, but they also had this second line of credit. It didn't get paid off and now it attaches to the land. Well, who's going to take care of that? And so the title company and the title insurance covers against that. Oh, interesting. That was a really good description. Uh, so h- how do you see this playing out? I mean, do you, do you view Blueprint as improving the, the buyer experience primarily and, and the vision being that people can more easily buy and sell homes throughout the U.S.? Or, or, or do you go beyond that? Uh, what what kind of gets you excited about the mission? Sure. Um, what gets me excited about the mission is it's incredibly important and really boring. And that's a really actually fun place to play. Um, so title insurance is about a $20 billion industry in the U.S. By the way, there is title insurance in some other countries, Canada, right, occasionally across the world, but it's mostly an American thing. Uh, the rest of the world uses the King system. We use like a very American system. And it's, it's why title insurance was invented in Philadelphia, um, in the early 19th century, it hasn't changed. Okay. Super like old school American thing. Um, it's nearly a $20 billion industry. It is utterly bloated and blueprint believes it should be about a $10 billion industry. And so when we say, what do we want to do with this? We want to make property conveyance easier for buyers and sellers. And part of that is you have to strip out unnecessary transaction costs, right? Like, it's hard to buy and sell an asset, whether it's a home or uh, a monetary asset, a financial asset. It's hard to buy and sell if transaction costs are so high that they ruin the IRR and the ROI. And so you've got to shrink those. And, and we think by doing that, yeah, it democratizes the buying and selling of real estate, um, but it also demystifies it, right? It, it takes like a lot of the pain out of it. And, and that's the mission. That's where we're going. So to make it easier for people to buy and sell by lowering the transaction cost out of a typical home, um, you know, I don't know what a typical home, maybe 500 K, what would be the comparative transaction costs period? And then of that, what is the average cost for a title insurance? Yeah. So, so here's the crazy thing. Um, it varies hugely across the country. Okay, so if you buy a five hundred thousand dollar home in Charlotte and a five hundred thousand dollar home in Dallas, okay, your title insurance and closing costs are about four and a half times greater in Dallas than they are in Charlotte. Okay, okay, and so there is no national answer, and and part of this is just the way the industry has grown up. So um, on a uh, five hundred thousand dollar house, you might pay. Something between two and five thousand dollars in title insurance premium, and depending on your market, you're going to pay, call it four hundred dollars to twelve hundred dollars in closing costs, and those are cost escrow. And those costs often come together and they subsidize each other a little bit. I mean, they're very interrelated in every market, um, but it's it's not odd. To have on a five hundred thousand dollars purchase, it wouldn't be odd to have five thousand dollars in cl- title and closing costs. That's crazy. And so your your yeah. thought is that's twice as high as as it needs to be. Our thought is that's twice as high as it needs to be. And so, title insurance it is such a mysterious thing, and it's so damn expensive. Mm. So yeah. your so the person who's paying five thousand dollars is paying for a company to come in and say. The, what what is the cost like behind the scenes for for these title insurance companies? What are they thinking mm-hmm. about? Like, what are they trying to minimize in terms of their expenses? And how do they? How do, what's status quo nowadays? Yeah. So, um, what's kind of crazy is the background of the industry. So, uh, in title insurance, there are four insurance companies that control eighty five percent of the title insurance market. Okay. Um, and as I described that product to you of what title insurance is, it's historical, right? It's not actuarial. So when you think of most insurance products, what we say is like, I'm buying this insurance in case something happens in the future. What, what we talked about with title is I'm buying this insurance in case I missed something that happened historically. Okay. And the important difference there is I can do work towards making sure that my historical analysis is accurate. And so 
uh, losses in title insurance are significantly lower than in property and casual insurance, right? In fact, we know and think, not, not everyone publishes their claims, but general consensus is that there's a 1% to 2% claims rate in title insurance versus 50 to 70% in PNC. And, and I'm using a lot of numbers, but, but to, to drive home the point that uh, these underwriters sell an insurance product that is far less likely to hit, right? Mm. And so where do they spend their costs? They spend it on distribution. The title agent makes a 70 to 90% commission on the title policy. Wow. Yeah. So that cost goes toward the agent marketing. It also subsidizes the agent's cogs on working the file, right? Which is personnel and doing a title search and, and sometimes wire fees. And like, there are hard cogs, but um, the industry is bloated because of there's a lot of people's hands uh, in the pie. And is it, is it just lack of attention that, that creative entrepreneurs have given it? Or is there some structural or regulatory uh, influence on why this hasn't been sort of compressed down over time? I, it kind of, to me, sounds just like a commodity that uh, is necessary in a transaction. So I would imagine just like car insurance that it's a significant expense, significant market size. So it would get compressed down over time as people get more competitive with their, their rates, but that's not, it doesn't seem to be happening. What, what's the, what's the deal? Sure. Um, so sunlight, right. It, it's transparency. Um, most people don't understand what title insurance was. And, and again, I was one of those people until we started working in this. And so, um, when there's a lack of transparency in an industry, it's hard to drive prices down because you just don't have that consumer push. Um, and so you haven't had that uh, that reduction. I, I think um, it's also the nature of the business uh, that that you know it's a bit it's a bit of an old school kind of a business. There are a number of really interesting entrepreneurial ventures in the space right now. Um, I say interesting, like I find them interesting, but they're not, again, they're not like on the front page of, of newspapers because it's, it's, it's that kind of an industry. And so, um, we're all working in different ways to sort of attack it, but, but, uh, uh, yeah, with, without a consumer push, it's hard to drive pricing down. Yeah. Yeah. Plus you also, I find in my experience that, that it's, um, it's just one of so many things that is yeah. thrown at you at the same time. You you're not, no one is sitting there and thinking, okay, today I'm going to go and buy title insurance independent from other things. It's like, okay, you got to sign all these documents. You got to find a lender. You got to do a deal. And also you're working full-time. And so this is like a part-time massive amount of work that you have to do. And everything seems like hurry up and wait. And then when the agent, so if a buyer agent is telling a buyer, hey, just use this title insurance, there's kind of a relationship there that you'd have to break the friction of to find another title insurance provider. Uh, and it's just, it's just more work. And so I think, yeah, you're right. To all those points, it's like, it's not, it just feels like it's, it's a package deal. It's just wrapped in everything else. Uh, how did you get into this? Go ahead. Well, you used a word a minute ago. I'm sorry. I mean, use the word commodity. If everyone's priced the same, the definition, right? So um, why would you switch if they all deliver the same service and the same price? Uh, why would why would you create more friction and, and change, right? And the thing I always point to, um, not only is everything you said is absolutely right about all the things that are happening in the same moment you're buying title insurance. 99% of the time when you buy title insurance, you're leaving that office and you're wondering where the moving truck is. And so you're immediately like forgetting that this kind of not great experience you just had and you're going to work on like something tangible that, and, and you're going to remember that moving experience. Um, and, and so a lot of the reason why haven't people gone and fought this, because there's a lot of parts of real estate that are screaming for attention as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I want to come back to that. How did you get into this space? Were you in real estate previously or what's your story? Sure. Um, no, I wasn't. I, I was an attorney. Uh, and then I started a company in a totally different space. Um, we sold that company and then I was an entrepreneur in residence and was trying to figure out what I wanted to work on next. And I'd had this sort of not great title and closing experience. Um, and I just kept coming back to it and, and I couldn't understand it. And so, um, my wife refers to entrepreneur in residence as glorified unemployed person. 
Um, she couldn't understand why I had 30 hours of free time every week. And so I just kept coming back to it. And I, and I think that was really pivotal because if I had had a full-time job, uh, I wouldn't have been able to dive as deep as I did. And for me, I just couldn't understand this $20 billion industry. And I would go and ask people about it. I went to our realtor, who, who's a great realtor and a really good guy. And I just said, hey, you know, Keith, tell me about title insurance. And Keith said, well, it's a tax. And I was like, no, I know it's not a tax. He said, it's mandatory. I said, I know it's not mandatory. He was like, and the, the prices are set by the government. I was like, well, no, that's not right. And I just thought, how can so many people who are really smart and know a lot about real estate be wrong or just just lack knowledge in this industry. And I thought, well, that's a thing I've got to go learn about, right? Like mm. that's what I want to go build. And, and so, um, uh, just kind of started and sat in a small room by myself for a year and taught myself title insurance. Um, and there's enough money in it that I could convince people to let me be their title agent and kind of make some money. And, and through that built a thesis that, um, for us, the only real way to attack this was we had to be a full stack provider. We had to be an underwriter had to be an agent. We had to have modern technology. We had to really think about this from a different business model. Uh, and, and I, were I not a glorified unemployed person, um, I probably wouldn't have, have, have spent that time on it. And what did you do for a year? So how do you get good? Like, how do you dive deep and even, I mean, Google university, I'm sure, but w- what do you do specifically? Yeah. Um, you just start right? Like it's, it's like anything else. You just start and then unabashedly call people and ask for help. So, um, I had a mentor in the industry. He's great. Remains a really good friend of mine. Um, and, and, you know, he's been a title attorney for 50 years in middle Tennessee. And so I can call him, but I actually didn't call him very much. I called his processor and her name's Ashley. I said, Ashley, which of these four documents do I need? And she would say, well, what kind of a deal is it? And then we would walk through it and she would kind of teach me. And I would just call someone else and say, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And built this subset of knowledge until frankly, we built enough business that we had earned the right to hire someone who was way better at it than me. And and so her name's Ginger. She's still here. She's been here for four years. Um, And every day Ginger teaches me something new. Um, But at some point you just have to start and then not be embarrassed to ask. And were you selling title insurance? I mean, did you get in as a service provider initially as a way to learn and get in the game? Yeah. Um, uh, was able to work with some people so that we had a licensed entity. Um, and we had a couple clients and we were the insurance provider. I, I wasn't the signatory on the insurance because I, I didn't know what I was doing, but, but uh, the mentor was. Um, and we, and I would every, he review the insurance pieces. I would do like the physical manual labor stuff. Um, until we were at a point where I could get myself licensed. And, um, you know, it was one of those really fortunate opportunities where there was enough money in it. And, uh, my wife works. And so I was able to not make that much money for a little while. Um, but looking back, I mean, no better way to learn an industry than just to dive into the guts of it for, for nine months. Yeah, totally. Um, well, there's so many things I want to ask you. So you dove in, um, was being a lawyer, a prerequisite. I mean, could I just become a title insurance salesperson or start my own company? Or is there some barrier that you have to climb in order to even get in the game? Every state's a little bit different. So there are states that are lawyer closed states where you wouldn't be able to hold escrow unless you're a member of the bar of that state. You wouldn't be able to do, you can't prepare a deed unless you're a member of the bar of that state. In most states, um, you don't need to be a lawyer. Uh, often you need to be a licensed insurance provider or you need to be a licensed escrow officer. Uh, you take a test, you pass the test and you're ready to go. I will tell you one of the things that I, I really appreciate having gone to law school um, is I'm not scared of the law. And, and I think pre-law school in the same way that like I'm scared of medicine right? Like yeah. four years of med school teaches you, it's nothing to be scared about. Here's how you find the answer. Law school is a really great education in finding the answer. And, and, and you know, inevitably, I, I think whenever you go into something that's legal or regulatory related, having that background is confidence building. Uh, so what in particular, so you come out of law school and you're thinking, 
you understand law, meaning you know how to not get in trouble from a, from a legal perspective or, or, or is it more forward looking than that? I mean, what, what do you think is the broad understanding that a lawyer would have that uh, a non-lawyer wouldn't? Yeah. So first, the day to day, right? So um, I told you that all escrow officer's job is to look at a contract. And if there's 30 deal items, make every one of those true. Um, a lot of people are intimidated by contracts. I, I, I was before law school, right? I mean, and so the ability to look at it and say, no, no, I'm just going to break this down, right? In the same way that I'm intimidated by so many of the things that our engineering team does. Um, mm-hmm. But when you when you have that experience and the confidence and you can look at it, I think from a longer term perspective, some of it's the regulatory. It's the ability to say, um, yeah, there's four months of work here. Or like, we're going to buy a, an insurance company. That's a daunting thing. Right. And, and fortunately, we've hired some amazing regulatory attorneys uh, at, at Blueprint who can get all that done. But the ability to look at that and just go, no, 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 I, I, I get that this is daunting. But um, if we make this hire and we follow these rules and oh, by the way, there's five rules and here are the three we have to follow. This one we can like ask for a waiver on. And this one we think doesn't apply to us. It's, it's mm. those kinds of things. Mm, yeah, it's kind of, I think of it almost like walking through a landmine where you're, you're just you're going through this mine and, and a, a lawyer would have these kind of goggles that could see like a foot deep. You know, they can't see all the mines, but they at least know the ones that are right there and going to kill you if you step on them. Whereas so many founders, myself included, you get into an industry, healthcare, uh, insurance, payments, uh, and, and you're just, you're, there's landmines all over the place and you don't know which mm-hmm. ones are old and they're, they're safe because so many people have already stepped on them and they haven't gone off and, and which ones are hot. You know, the, the government cares they, they don't, in my experience, the government doesn't regulate all laws equally. They care about certain areas and certain trends much more so than others. So even in areas where things are less defined, if you're in a less defined area that's about to have some change to it, well, then you're, you better watch out, uh, which is probably crypto. I mean, the intersection of crypto, fintech, uh, a lot in healthcare. I mean, there's a lot of stuff changing, but I, I find that a good, um, heuristic or, or way to go about it. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think there's a, um, so internally we talk about jaywalking and, and they'll come to me and they'll be, and they'll basically say like, I'll say, yeah, that's the rule, but I think our intent is good. And so let's, let's like ask for a waiver on that. And they, they'll say to, like our internal attorneys will say like, Steve, that's not jaywalking, which means like, you think that doesn't matter. It does matter. You need to follow that rule. And, oh, really? And I, yeah, so uh, they'll it depends on the depends on the rule, but um, what I think is helpful, and I mean, you have this from all of your entrepreneurial ventures, right? That had such high regulatory. Um, there are industries where you can just start and ask for forgiveness, and insurance isn't one of those. And so, I think when we approached Blueprint, we said, "How do we deeply understand the rules?" and then deeply understand what's jaywalking and what's homicide. Mm. And then go to the regulators and say, we're going to be super careful about all this stuff. These things over here, we want to, we, we want to play with them. Are you okay with that? And, and I think insurance, you get in trouble when you ask for forgiveness. Instead, if you go to a department of insurance or if you go to certain regulators and say, listen, um, we understand this rule and we understand why the rule is there. Here's why we'd like to do something different. And by the way, here's the protection we're offering against the thing you're worried about that most regulators will be super understanding. And I think where people get in trouble in insurance is they go in and they try to take a very Uber approach and just say, well, we're just going to start and then we'll see what happens. And like, we'll be so big. They can't sue us out of this and be like, no, 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 you're going to get shut down. Has that happened? I mean, are there like open examples of, of companies that have raised venture and, and gotten sizable and then got shut down? Or is that? There are people who have been denied for things, right? They've like, they've created brilliant algorithms or brilliant models. And then they apply to regulators and they go, look how brilliant this is. And the regulars like, it is brilliant, but it's also not allowed. And, and they just get blanket denied, right? And, and, and so- um, healthcare, what would they be denied absolutely. for? 
denied for? Um, sure. So I think anything, anytime an insurance where you're going to increase claims or potentially increase loss to uh, consumers or to the insured is, is usually going to get really high scrutiny. And so for us, we'll say, look, we're going to take, uh, we'd like to file a reduced pricing. Um, but it's not going to reduce the amount we keep in reserves against claims. We're going to reduce, we're going to reduce premiums because we're going to run more efficiently or because we're full stack or, you know, we have an underwriter and an agency in house. We'll share the money in a more, uh, even handed way. We're not going to make it riskier to the consumer. And, and I think that's the kind of thing where that's, that's the homicide verse. Uh, I've made this really dark by saying homicide this many times, but, uh, when you, when, you know, understanding what a rule is there for and, and, and what's the protection. Yeah. Okay. And so from the, from the regulators perspective, they care about the scenario where assuming you, you have good intentions, but they care about the insurance company having claims and not being able to pay them. Right. And then people are, are sitting there upset and then they're going to come to the government and be like, yo, these guys lied to me. And then the, then the government has more work to do. I met, is that g- the yeah. general gist of the, the economic flow down there? I, I think that's probably right. Uh, you know, ensuring that the holder of the insurance policy, the insurer, has enough money to pay off claims is, is probably in the public good, right? And so uh, to say that that's among a regulator's chief concerns, yeah, I think that's probably fair. Do, do, do you or every insurance company need to have, is there like some golden ratio? I mean, I, I know very little about this space, so I'm yeah. curious, but you don't need to have say you have a thousand customers and collectively, if worst case scenario happened in those, all the houses burned down, you need, you know, a, a, a hundred million or whatever the amount comes to. You don't need that cash in your account at all times, right? There's, is there some ratio or how is that sort of parsed out? Sure. It varies by state. Um, so I'm going to answer that every time we talk about regulatory, it's, <laughs> it's going to vary by state. There's always a golden ratio of reserves, which is the cash on hand, and they absolutely need it on hand, right? I mean, it, it's um, you need liquid or, or semi-liquid cash to pay off claims, but it's a ratio of expected loss. And so you can imagine if you're a title company, your expected losses are significantly lower than a car insurance company, right? And so the amount of money that uh, you know Hippo or Root or Lemonade has to keep in reserves is significantly higher than what Blueprint is expected to keep in reserves um, because there's a ratio both of premium and expected loss. There's a couple. There's a couple different ratios, um, and we keep really close eyes on them. Um, but they always have to do with you know protection of the insured. Got it. Got it. And uh, so blueprint. So your do you think a blueprint is selling to consumers or selling to a agent or some B two B strategy or B two B to C or how, how do you sort of see the business aspect of it? Yeah, it's B2B and B2B2C. So we sell directly to people buying volume um, and single-family residential in in particular. So uh, people who are out buying 30, 40, 50 homes a month, even people, you know, if you are professionally, if you're a professional home flipper or a wholesaler, you may only transact five, six times a month. Um, but that's a very full-time business. And, and so those are the people we go to and all of our tech and all of our policies are designed really to cater to those folks. Now it's, it's B2B to C because often they're buying a property and then selling it, right? Or we work with, a, we have a number of prop tech clients and there may be a consumer at the end of that prop tech journey. Um, but the decision maker, the person bringing Blueprint in is usually a really sophisticated, um, higher volume, experienced buyer and seller. I see. Got it. Got it. And and do you see Blueprint as, I mean, this is a kind of a challenge of some startups uh, where you're in a space, like I, I built a company in home care uh, where we were, we were a marketplace for families to connect caregivers for seniors and the families. 
And one of the challenges that we ran into was how do you differentiate enough? Like we have, we had tons of venture funding. We had a great like engineering team. We had an app. But at the end of the day, a family goes in and they're searching for home care and they're finding like, you know, local mom and pop shops and they're finding us. And this is a challenge in spaces where you're trying to optimize. You're trying to be like 10x better by combining 50 different things and making all the 50 different things better. And you're trying to win on branding, on reputation, on speed, on price. But it's like, it's, it's like categorically you're in the same field. Uh, You know, categorically you're still providing title insurance. You're working through the existing rails. Is there, did you think about this as being a struggle or a, maybe not a struggle, but as a, uh, a thing that you think about in, in terms of like, how do we differentiate ourselves from the incumbents in the space to a big degree. Yeah, without a doubt. And it goes back to that, that commodity comment you made earlier, right? So historically title and escrow have been thought as a commodity. Um, differentiation means not just providing the value props, but really delivering them and delivering the message of those value props. And so for us, um, in so many markets, we're coming in and saving people money. Not everywhere. There are markets where we can't. Um, but in so many markets, we're saving people real significant money. Um, from a, uh, a transaction perspective and a technology perspective, the question to our client base is, can we make your job easier? Can we make transacting in real estate easier and more confident for you? And so all of our tech is designed around templates and workflows. And, and so for you, it was, you know, how do I convince people to, not to maybe, I'm sure there was 50 times more than this, but how do I convince people that we're going to deliver on great home care and that the value proposition we offer uh, is greater than these local sort of can be trusted because they're down the street kind of people, right? For us, it's really the same. It's um, usually you're working with a title agent who's local, probably does a great job, but 90% of what they do is residential uh, mom, like like consumer purchase, right? The Joneses are selling to the Smiths. And when they do... Um, the average closing for residential real estate is 42 days, and it's dominated by the mortgage process. Well, a ton of our transactions are cash or hard money, or if there is a loan, it's significantly faster. Our transactions have to be 7, 10, 15, 20 days, and they're templated. They've got to be a lot faster. And oh, by the way, the buyer is in California and the seller's in New York, the property's in Texas, and how do we make all that happen and what can we do? Online? And so um, that local title agent, isn't built for that. It's not that they're bad at what they do. It's that that, that transaction you just brought broke their system. I so see. Blueprint's got to show up and say, not only are we as good as that local person, but we can handle the complexity you're bringing. And, and yeah. I'm sure for you guys, there, were, there was a lot of similarity, right? Well, you, uh, you even more so because uh, you, or you have a more compelling differentiation because of the interstate complexities like home care mm-hmm. you, you can be in any state and you can you know put your credit card in online and it doesn't really make a difference but in your case if someone is actually living in a different state and they're purchasing property in a different state and the seller's in another state they, i mean i would imagine it depends the answer is like state by state because so so much power so much influence of the local property transaction laws are dictated by the states um, so I, I see that as being really compelling. Are, are you guys in all the states or do you think about it as like a state-by-state state rollout? State-by-state state rollout. Yeah. Uh, we're licensed in 26 states right now. We've got a couple more coming on board. So you've got, not only that, um, uh, I love the complexity, but, but they're, it's there. Uh, so the agency is licensed in 26 states. Our underwriter is licensed in five, uh, they both have applications submitted for expansion right now. So we're sort of growing. And, and you know, my guess is that by the end of next year, uh, the agency will be in about 40, 45 states. And the underwriter will be, you know, north of 20, north of 25. Um, but we're going to, you know, it is a state-by-state rollout. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do underwriters, like, what's the underwriter process? So is there somebody in a dark room that you just feed them data or is it even a person anymore or is it completely automated? I'm curious where it is now. And then where's it going to be? I mean, what, what's the end state for is underwriting some blend of people and robots, people in AI? It's a blend of people and robots. So there's a number of markets that continue to have a requirement that human eyes 
approve of the underwriting process or approve of portions of it. And so, you know, we're, we're really particular about that. Um, it's a blend. So uh, th- this sounds crazy, but um, there are these books called recording books. And, and if you've ever, uh, you actually vote and elect a lot of these people in a lot of markets, um, but uh, they manage the recording office. And so you go to the basement of the courthouse and there's a book and you follow the story of the land. And so, you know, 123 Main in Portland, Oregon is currently owned by the Joneses. And the Townsends want to buy it. Okay, great. So now you want to look at the history. And you you go and you look in the recording book. And it says, well, the Joneses bought it eight years ago. So you go look in that book. And eight years ago, they bought it from the Smiths. And then it says, all right, 20 years ago, they bought it from the Joneses. And so you go back and you go, so the Joneses. And like old school, you went back and it was called Black Thumb because you just went through all these books, right? And like <laughs> flipped through. Um, a lot of that's online now. Not quite enough of it is online. You'd be amazed at how many counties in the US don't have those records online. But what we do is um, we go back and we do a whole historical analysis of the property. The other thing that Blueprint does um, that uh, not everyone does is we're looking at the seller. We're looking at um, making some judgments about the zip code. We're making judgments about right, like some basic algorithmic uh, 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 decisions. There's still a human element to it, though. And I think, so when we say, what's the future, um, I would love to be in a world where the future of underwriting is all online. And, and frankly, you could be some combination of OCR and algorithmic analysis that would spit out all of the elements of this property. I think, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, the data isn't yet there. Um, and there's some regulators who would have a problem with that. And so, you know, I, I think it probably makes sense to, to deliver a lot of that um, and then have human review and analysis. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what do you think about uh, fractional property shares? Say like if you take the crypto is interesting, well, blockchain technology is interesting layered on the property because you can, mm-hmm. in theory, you can own, uh, you know, f- tiny fractions of properties. Like I can own, you know, one, 2% of, you know, six homes, each in different cities today. That's really, really hard to do. I think, I, I think it's hard to do. Uh, it seems like it would be. Is there a pathway to that being, you know, set 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 into action where I could just like literally click a button and send some Bitcoin over to some wallet and then I own? I mean, is that how, if that is, how would that happen? Sure. So um, first, there's there's some really awesome prop tech companies that are delivering on exactly what you mentioned right now, where they're saying come by, you know, come invest 10 grand into this $200,000 purchase, um, co-own this investment property or co-own, all right? This, so there, there's really great companies and we work with a ton of them. Um, and, and by the way, even if you wanted to do it, you can form an LLC, the LLC can purchase the property and then you and 20 of your friends can each buy 5% of the property through an LLC agreement that has nothing to do really with the ownership is just the LLC. Um, could it be significantly more interesting if you put it into uh, the blockchain um, and sold ownership percentages? Absolutely. And there's nothing stopping that from happening. Okay. Um, what I often get asked about is, well, why don't they just put all property records onto the blockchain? Right. Um, couldn't you solve all of title insurance and all of historical analysis just by putting everything in the blockchain. And I think the problem is a couple fold. One, um, title insurance exists in case a lot of times because people make errors, right? So I, I look at the analysis and I get it wrong or something 30 years ago was misfiled. And so it never really attached in the way that I would expect it to. Well, if that's true, then when you transfer everything from paper into the blockchain, you're going to have the same garbage in garbage out problem. Right, like if there's errors in paper, then there's errors in the block, uh, and so you have that problem. The other issue is there are more than three thousand three thousand counties in the U.S. They control their own records. You're saying that all of those counties are going to put all of their records into blockchain? Those counties haven't even put their records on the internet yet, and so it, it, it's one of those like, yeah, it'd be nice, but maybe it's not a terribly realistic expectation anytime soon um yeah i don't see I, how would that i'm i don't even see how 
what would be the compelling argument to put title insurance on the blockchain? To me, insurance seems like, yeah, I, in this case, I mean, there's certainly more practical examples of insurance being more compelling than status quo insurance. Like if I have a car insurance policy, it's on the blockchain. What does that mean? Is that really useful for me more so than the traditional model? But I think of the blockchain as being special because of the ownership part, you know, like the mm. insurance part is not, you know, regardless of what insurance it is, there's going to have to be some human investigation as to whether there's going to be a claim paid out. I mean, I, I don't see any time period and we get, get away from that because people will, will fraud it if there isn't. And in the case of ownership, it just seems so much more compelling because there's no, there's no, um, asterisks. There's no, uh, if you own it, you own it and that's it. There's no, it's not, you're not taking out an insurance policy. So. Yeah. So title insurance is wrapped up in ownership. What we're mm -hmm. doing is we're saying, you know, who owned it previously and what are your, what, are, what, what are the set of rights that you now own as the owner of 123 May? And so I think the idea is oh. there would be a, uh, a level of confidence in that ownership if you could have a token that told you, no, 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 this is a non-fungible token in Mike Townsend's name. And therefore, I don't need to do any research because I have confidence in this, in this NFT of ownership. Um, and whether you sold percentages of it or not would be up to you. I, I think the problem is, um, historically, that's not how land is transferred right? We have what's called a conveyance deed. A conveyance deed has to be built by an attorney, um, and then it has to be recorded in the county courthouse. So are most counties ready for fractional ownership as distributed on OpenSea? Probably not. Um, yeah. I, you know, and, and I think that's why you don't see it. Um, it doesn't mean financially you could do it, right? And, and I think that's what I often tell people is I'm like, hey, Mike, that sounds like an awesome idea. Go build fractional ownership of this property. Do it via the blockchain. That doesn't have to be how you buy the property, right? That's really how you collect the money. And so don't mm -hmm. let don't let this don't let this historical courthouse system stop you from doing the right financial thing. Yeah. Yeah. I almost see it as like an adapter. Like on one end, mm -hmm. you're plugged into the old school system, but then on the other end, you're just you're plugged into the the web three world where if you buy a house and say, you know, you you take 50% of the value of the house and you put that up on the blockchain. Well, great. That's a, that's a separate transaction. You still have a debt to the lender, but now you could pay off that debt through, you know, the money you raised through selling off ownership in the house. And that have to be, you know, you'd have to think through the contract there, uh, and what the details are. And I'm sure there'll be different versions of how that looks, but conceptually the gains are pretty straightforward. They come from either, rental property mm -hmm. or from selling the property. I mean, other than that, I, there, there are, there could be gains from people trading secondhand, like what the value of the house is. That would be the interesting thing, you know, like it, same with companies, right? You have the liquidation event when the company is bought or IPOs, but you can also have liquidation event on the secondary market where people are trading, mm -hmm. uh, value of the stock options behind the scenes, like employees may do. And that is by analogy, what I think that the kind of interesting play could be in houses where, you know, like Austin, in order to, people will say, you move into Austin. Oh, that's great because we expect the real estate to go up. And it has over the last, you know, five, 10 years, because a lot of people are move, moving there. But what if you didn't want to uproot your entire life? But, you know, to your point earlier, you want to invest in that city. Um, yeah. Like Miami came out with city token, city coins, which are, are kind of interesting. You know, you can, mm -hmm buy into the city, mostly through the governance arm of the city, through their tokens, which is separate from property ownership entirely. Uh, Look, I, that's why it's fun to work in real estate, right? Yeah. It's this tangible thing that like, um, one of the reasons that I got so interested in this, I, first of all, I watched a lot of friends get rich in real estate in the early 2010s, right? And I was like, I probably should know more about real estate. Everyone has this connection to their house, to their apartment, to their condo. It's, it's like, it's, it's not make believe world. And so you start to think about real estate and then there's so many interesting things that are happening 
in the world that then get applied to real estate. Um, and, and there's, you know, hundreds and thousands of companies doing that. And so just conversation we're having now, right. But like, how do you apply? And, and I think too often people go, Oh, well, it's real estate. You can't do that. And it's like, no, 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 you, you can do that. We'll figure out how to plug that in. I love the adapter mm-hmm. analogy, like mm-hmm. blueprint. will figure out how to plug that in for you. Whatever business model you have on your end, that's great. We will templatize your transaction. So now all we need to know is what's the name of this NFT or, you know, what's the name of the underlying legal purchase entity? You can do whatever you want on your end. We will help facilitate that for you and we'll translate it to county courthouse. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Keep, keep the existing government infrastructure as it is. You know, they don't, they, that's the best way to do it is if they don't need to change and you can just be the adapter for them. So yeah, I dig it, man. It sounds like you guys are on to some, some great ideas. Where is the business now in terms of progress? You mentioned all the states you're licensing um, in terms of revenue or money raised or employees or wh- how do you measure yeah. progress internally? Sure. Um, how many states we're in is a huge one. Like that, that's just such a, a definitive growth. Um, we're about to hit our hundredth employee, which is also um, uh, you know, I mean, I mentioned Ginger was our first employee early 2018. And so it's fun every time you get to add people, um, and the level of people we're adding, it just makes it more fun to come to work. Um, we closed a series B in, uh, in the spring of, of 2021, um, brought on some good partners. And I think we, you know, we're now seeing just this great traction, um, uh, December is slow for everyone in real estate. People stop buying, but our trajectory this year has just been awesome. And I think as we look at 2022, um, so much, so much, so many good things happening. It's awesome, man. Well, congrats on all the progress and uh, Thanks. hope to have you guys back on someday. Yeah, I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks a lot. All right. Take it easy, Steve. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.